Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and I'm your host. The previous series explored Peter Block's six conversations. For this series of episodes, we're speaking with practitioners who are using these conversations in the world. Today, Brad Wise and Joey Taylor speak with Efi Bell. My name is Efi Bell. My full name is Nefer Efi, but I go by Efi. Today, I find myself snowed in in Cincinnati, Ohio, but I also live in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as in Ghana. My life's mission is really to help others expand their capacities to bring their best selves to all facets of their life, whether it be work or community or family. And I do that through either coaching, teaching, consulting, or just showing up and asking weird questions. I have two beautiful daughters and I get to work with a variety of different organizations and individuals and communities all across the globe. I have really embedded the concepts of Peter's work into all of my work. It's become a part of my lexicon. It's become a part of my DNA, the quilt or the fabric of how I show up in the earth. A unique aspect about me is I'm also a Ghanaian chief. Evie begins by talking about how she began to facilitate the conversations in her life. When I was first introduced to this work, I had made a commitment that I was going to be better for my family first before I was going to be better for anyone else. I tried it on my children. Now, if you can do this with your family, you can do it anywhere. You can ask anybody these questions because your family can be the most unforgiving group sometimes. (laughs) I worked up the bravery muscle to sit knee to knee in chairs with my two teenage daughters at the time in high school and to ask them questions about why was it important for them to come to this conversation and to ask them questions about what is the forgiveness they are withholding in our family that no one knows about. Like, I thought I would pass out, y'all, okay? Like, I was in the chair drinking lots of water, sweating. I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm gonna make it through this conversation. And it was rough. It was rough. I'm not even gonna sugarcoat it. That first experience was awful. Just awful. I didn't want to know the answer to some of the questions. As a parent, I didn't want my children to think I was an imposter. Like, who is this lady that just showed up in our living room? Like, what is she talking about? Like, we don't talk like this. We don't engage like this. Like, we don't have conversations in this way. Like, maybe we need to check out what she's been doing. You know, I didn't want to show up in in that way. I think that was, was scary. I think it was mostly just the fear of what would the result be. And that I would have to answer the question, too as a parent, like, mm-mm-mm. so that was challenging. And so I just kept doing it. I just kept working that bravery muscle and I kept doing it with my kids. I did it in other places and found it easier in other places, but it still was challenging with my family. And I think it was mostly me. I don't know if it was mostly them. Last year during the pandemic, we were all home, like home from college. Everybody's smushed up in this space together. Yay, okay. And they were getting on each other's nerves. And so my oldest comes downstairs and she's like, I can't take it anymore. I can't live in this room with her. And I'm like, oh, Lord. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, this sucker's about to come off the rails, right? And so I said, well, where, what are you talking about? So she explains to me, like, I can't live with my sister. She's so messy. Like, this is ridiculous. I can't take it. So I said, okay, tell your sister to come downstairs, right? And so she comes downstairs and 
before they came down, I literally was like, okay, Lord, what questions am I going to ask? Tell me what questions to ask in this moment. Cause they have been bubbling. I'm like, this isn't about clothes on the floor. Like there's something else here. And so I don't want to try a traditional approach of like, well, what's the problem? You know, I remember asking my youngest daughter, I said, well, tell me what's going on. So she explained, I said, okay, so what's your contribution to the very thing you're complaining about? Mac truck, right? <laughs> and she was standing there like, oh, I don't like this lady. I don't like her questions, right? And she just kind of looked at me and I was like, are you gonna, are you gonna, you got an answer maybe? And she was like, I'm not contributing to anything. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. And so we just stayed in that space of just asking those questions or I would say, okay, well then tell me more about that or why is that important to you? And she paced the floor. But when we got to the end of it, where we landed, I would have never have guessed. The striking moment of that conversation was we ended up discussing what does it mean to belong in this family? And I was like, how'd we get here? <laughs> One dirty sock, <laughs> a squeezed up room. But I remember asking the questions about what is your contribution? I remember asking the questions about why that was important to you. I asked the question about how concerned for the whole are you? Because you all have to share this room. And so as you think about your decisions that you're making, are you thinking about them in concern of the whole? And that's what took us down the road of really thinking about what it means to belong in this family. And how do we do that? How do we co-create that together? And what does that mean as we are in this transitional space of age? They're in freshmen in college and sophomores in college. And your mom's like, you're supposed to be going that way. You want to go this way and all those different things. And we still are having this discussion about what does it mean to belong in this family and how do we foster that together? What do you need? What do you want? Sometimes it's explosive and other times it's not. And even when we have those explosive conversations, I always ask them, what is the commitment you're willing to make to this family that doesn't require barter from you? So I don't have to say, if you do this, I'll do that, or you do this, I'll do this. What What's the commitment that you're willing to make? And sometimes there is no commitment. And other times we land on a commitment that'll get us through the next 30 minutes <laughs> or the next 30 days. Because of that experience of integrating it into the family, there's not yet been a response that scares me or startles me away from having these conversations with people outside of my family. How did you navigate that thing that you said, Lori, you, you didn't want them to be like, who is this lady talking to us in this foreign? Like, I remember when I was a kid and my parents would try to do like Bible studies and they would like take on this weird personality of like some Sunday school teacher. How did you actually do that? Because I feel like yeah. that's probably a universal skill that if you can walk into a room and it feel authentic and not forced and weird. It was just weird that first time. And they just looked at me weird. And I just said, you know what, if this gets my family to where it's flourishing, I'll survive weird. The way I've been able to navigate and go forward is I don't always use the constructed question as exactness, if that makes sense. So my approach is usually two ways. One, I just kind of let a conversation go. If I don't think starting us off with this structured question or giving all the protocols is really gonna work, what I tend to do often is to just use the tell me more and get people warmed up to that aspect or why is that important to you? And that 
usually in and of itself shifts the air in the room, right? And shifts the conversation. And people often kind of go, huh, like and their guards start to come down because they realize that this does not have to be a performative conversation. I don't have to be scripted in my answer. They're just like, something is different. It smells different in here. Like, what is that, you know? Sometimes I will introduce a question and other times I'll just stay with those two questions. And then the other aspect is to just reframe it a little bit. So instead of maybe like verbatim, what's the crossroad you're facing? I might say, hey, where do you see yourself standing on the edge of something in life? And then people are like, oh, because the edge is still a crossroad, so to speak. You either jump or walk away. You know, sometimes you just have to rephrase it or rearrange the words a little bit, but not too much that you lose the authenticity of the question or the power of the question, but really giving people a construct, maybe even using some language. So it just depends. I use it with my nieces. They're five and seven. And, you know, sometimes you have to rephrase it for the audience to meet them where they are. As we take a second to let Ify's words sink in, Here's a poem by Dane Anthony. It's called, Right Here. Stop moving. Stand in one place. This place. Breathe slowly. In. Then out. Repeat. Repeat again. Let your shoulders sink and relax. Unclench your jaw, slowly close your eyes, listen for your heartbeat, really listen, feel it pulse in your fingertips, lessen expectations, underdo all your efforts, requisition the time for your soul to catch up, lean into the wind, feel it like a tree and test the ground. Learn to trust the resilience. It would be treason to move quickly, left or right from this place. It is all right to be exactly what you are, who you are, where you are, right here, right now. As we return, Ify describes her own calling and purpose. I shared this before, it was powerful when it hit me and it has stuck with me. And I really think that it's part of my calling. And so for me, regardless of the setting that I'm in, my purpose for using the question is to usher freedom into that space. Even though someone might be like, man, that's really like presumptuous or these other things. I'm like, "Mm mm-mm. If you smell freedom, let you get a whiff of freedom and you will wanna smell it all the time too. If you're willing to like weather the weirdness and the awkwardness of asking the questions because you want to bring freedom in the room, there's obviously a lack of freedom. Can you talk more about that? The lack of freedom that you sense? Power and freedom look different for everybody. And as a Black African-American woman, I often have to navigate, along with many others, navigate spaces that are constraining, that are restrictive, that are hostile that are not friendly. One of the things that a lot of African-Americans, men and women will say, any room or any conversation you should assume is hostile. 
before you get there. If you enter into the room with that belief, then you'll start off in the right spot versus getting burned because you don't come in with that expectation and then you end up in a place you don't necessarily want to be. Because of those intersectionalities and a whole lot of others, I think that endurance of that lack of freedom in conversations is really why it's important to me. And it's why I'm willing to be a pioneer, be the weird, be the different. I think the first interaction with this, I was like, I found all the hippies, y'all. I know where they are. <laughs> right? And I was just like, I don't want to become that. Like, I don't want people to be like, oh, she's one of those. And I'm like, I don't want to be one of those. Like, I want to be who I am. Because I don't know what those are that you're even describing. You know, like, I'm not sure if I want to be lumped in yet. Like, those are all these different things that were like in my mind, even to the point where I was just like, oh my gosh, like how should I structure my hair? Because if I choose this hairstyle, like you're going to be looking like one of them. And I'm like, who is the them we're looking about? Like, who are we even talking about? I think it's just the freedom to be my authentic self. And I have not always had the opportunity to be my authentic self. When I really began to lean into who that was and be able to show up consistently as my authentic self and make the choice to, you know, Peter's work talks about living a life of choice, not one of mandate. And that was my declaration for myself in 2019 that uh, it's time out for mandate living. I'm over it and I'm going to live a life of choice. And if I don't choose to be there, then I'm not going to anymore. When I hear people say, man, it was so refreshing to actually like really just think about what I was going to say and just say it versus wanting to respond to something or this is the first time I've ever been with a group of people I didn't know at all and shared more stuff than I think my family even knows and so those statements those are just those are just quotes of freedom right that they've not experienced and you can even see people breathe differently their physical elements shift about them so for me I'll keep doing it for that reason because I think it's my assignment (laughs) As you're facilitating spaces, what does it feel and smell like when freedom enters into the room? What are those indicators for you? What it feels and smells like to me is a cool summer breeze. I remember doing this as a child. I've always done it. When I really want to feel connected to God, I will go outside, close my eyes, and just wait for this cool summer breeze to blow by. When I sense the presence of freedom in the room, that's the feeling that I get. Like the windows down, you know how you did this when you were a kid, you kind of rode your hand on the wave of the air when the car was going. It's almost like that smell or that sensation, nothing is restricting you and anything is possible. I was on a similar path as you, Joey, but I wanted to get like really specific of like, can you tell me the story of like a specific person who experienced that freedom. There was a woman and it was her revelation moment. In the middle of her telling her crossroad, she was just like, oh, I don't even think I realized that was my own cross. Like she was just like, wow, that just struck me on my own. What she had shared was her father was black and her mom was white. And she was sharing the crossroads she's facing is to engage with more women of color and more black African-American women because she doesn't feel comfortable engaging with us. And I was like, wow. And she was just like, I've never really told anybody this. And I just was hoping I could hide and not have to make it an announcement about it. 
in this particular group? And she said, but just the structure and the question forced me to just say it out loud. And I'm glad I did. The reaction I think she got as well from other people, she wasn't expecting. So I think she was expecting resistance. What is it about those those moments in those rooms that people are willing to say things that they've never said before. Why does that happen? Because I've been a part, I've been in those rooms. Yeah. Like, what is that? One, I think it's our responsibility if we're the facilitator on how we construct and how we organize the environment. If we don't organize the environment, it's almost like a cake, right? If we don't turn on the oven. I remember growing up as a child and my mom always baked. I forgot this one particular cake, but we could not walk fast, hard, jump, skip, none of that in the kitchen or the cake would fall in. I think it was a pound cake maybe. I think about these these conversations sometimes like a pound cake. If there's too much jumping, if there's too much disruption, so to speak, or these, if something is there, the cake will fall in. So one, I think it's the size of the group. If you have 10 people talking to each other and you try to ask that question, people are like, I don't know these people. I have nothing to say. But this intimacy that there's only two other people here, so only two other people can tell my secret, right? Kind of thing. (laughs) So I think the sanctity that that creates, it reminds me of what I call my girlfriend calls. If it's just me and my girlfriend, like, oh my gosh, girl, let me tell you what happened. Right? It feels like it's just she and I. When there's just three people in a group, there's just this more intimate space. I think the other thing of giving people space, because like when you put into the triads, you still need to be far enough that I don't hear what someone else is saying in their triad. And I'm not really concerned about hearing what they say. I'm more concerned that you can hear what I can say. And I don't want them to hear what I just said, because I'm only willing to say it in front of these two people. Because like I've even seen people kind of lean in and say, <laughs> say it. I think also the context. It requires the setup. Helping people to understand, I tell them there's rules to this conversation. And this is a conversation you've never had before. And the questions are gonna be ambiguous and evoke anxiety. Listen deliciously and stay curious. I talk about curiosity beforehand. And I talk about how we're often listening to respond versus just being able to listen and that they can only ask these two questions. And and often, if I'm working with women, I will often talk about, in more length, the need to resist being helpful because we're predispositioned and conditioned in that way. And so, um, you know, I explain what do I mean by not being helpful. And it doesn't take long, right? So this is like setting up the experience. But without that, it can work, but the probability is a little lower, I think. I've done it in a group as big as almost 80 people, and it still yielded some of the same results. There is a requirement. If you're going to usher in freedom, you have to do certain things. As the person who is trying to, to be the conductor of that, there's something you are responsible for in order for others to, to get to that place. And that when you usher that in, that freedom, then they leave, like, the, then what? you like, what, what happens because of these experiences? Have you, have you heard any specific stories or? Because mm. it's good in the moment, but like. Yeah, yeah. What? One of the things that I, I often try to do is avail myself. Now, I only got so many hours in a day and I got to be in a lot of places in that day. But 
whether it's that day, the next day, whatever, or if it's days from now or whatever, as you're building the muscle, you can always call me and ask me a question, run something by me, try something with me. If you want to sit in a triad and say, okay, I want to try this one question because it's scary. Okay, great. I'll sit in the triad or the two ad if that's all we got and do it with you. And so I think as practitioners, even what I like to call people who hold the theory, we have to avail ourselves to strengthen people's capacity to do that. And you need a place to practice. Even in leadership, I tell people all the time, like what you don't want to do is start like, oh, I learned how to be a better communicator and I'm going to whip it out on people. Like, no, don't do that. Okay. Okay. Don't do that. Make some cupcakes first. Try them at home with people who like you or something (laughs) before you start baking them for the whole community. Even when I do this, with groups, with organizations, with companies, I do two things. One, I challenge them to try and use those two questions in their regular conversations. Tell me more and why is that important to you? So I'll say, where do you think you're going to have a conversation with someone in the next day or two that you can try those two questions out? And so I challenge them to think about how do I start to bring this into my lexicon with those smaller ones. I may never see them again, but if they have those two, they'll be armed to go at least further than that. And then the other way is to say, if you ever have questions or you want to talk more about it, happy to be here to be a resource or whatnot. And then I invite people to journal. What's coming up for you after this question, after this session, after this conversation? Because the question is working on you and it may not all come up in this very moment. Because we can go away with a cotton candy experience like, oh, that was cool. Uh Uh-huh. And go right back to the same old thing we've been doing. But I think giving people both access to the questions, they're not long and lengthy so they can be easily remembered inviting them to remember them and to take them and use them in other places. Thanks for listening. You can find more about Efi and the conversations in the show notes. Also, our next Abundant Community Conversation will be with Jen Hoos Rothberg on November 15th. You can find the registration link in the show notes as well. This episode has been hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Charlinchan, and it's been produced by the amazing Joey Taylor, and music is from Jeff Gorman.